Welcome to Perspectives with Dr. Vadisha Patel. Do you sometimes feel alone in life with personal and interpersonal struggles and challenges? We'll show you that you are not alone and that you can learn and thrive from your challenges and thereby live a healthy life. Now, here is your host, Dr. Vadisha Patel. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Perspectives. I'm your host, Dr. Vidisha Patel. As a licensed mental health therapist, I come across clients who sometimes suffer from addictions. But unfortunately, most people who need treatment for addiction rarely receive it. In fact, only 10% of those who actually need the treatment receive it, which is quite shocking to me. There's a lot of stigma around addiction, and many who suffer are afraid to disclose their challenges. And additionally, sometimes the loved ones of these people also suffer from the stigma or ha- of having a close person that is afflicted by addiction. So today we're going to be talking with a specialist from Valley Hope, a residential and outpatient treatment center. Melissa Kenworthy is the Southwest Regional Director of Operations for Valley Hope. She has more than 10 years of experience in the field of addictions. So welcome, Melissa, and thank you for joining me on Perspectives. Thank you. So the statistic that I found um, through some of the material that was sent to me about this 10% of those who, who need treatment receiving it is, um, that's really frightening. So what are your thoughts about the reasoning behind that? You know, I think there are a lot of factors that can, that can, play a role and and you really touched one of the biggest ones, which is the stigma. There's a lot of fear around uh, asking for help, a fear what other people are going to think. Um, And even, you know, fear of of the future. Once I have this, you know, um, label on me, I'm an addict or an alcoholic, how is that going to affect my future? Um, And I think those are really valid questions and, and valid concerns that those who may need treatment should have. Um, you know, and then the other the other piece to this too, in addition to the stigma, is where do I go? Where do I turn? Right. Um, can be a really daunting task to try to find to find help out there. Um, you know, there are a lot of reputable places that can provide very good treatment, but um, that can be very difficult to find when all you've got at your fingertips maybe Google and you don't really know the difference between one place or another or what you need to do. So, so do you think it is education then? Um, would that be a helpful tool? Absolutely. For uh, Absolutely. And then when, we, when you talk about addiction, are you at Valley Hope? And I would like you to talk a little bit about, exa- about Valley Hope specifically and what you do there. But when, when you're talking about addiction, are you talking about primarily with alcohol? Or are you also talking about drugs and possibly other things as well? I'm talking about drugs, alcohol, and possibly other things too, as well as gambling, other what we call process addictions, which are not necessarily chemical addictions, um, but can be just as damaging as those um, with drugs and alcohol. So can you talk about the difference then between process addiction and chemical addiction? Sure, absolutely. So the the main difference is that with a chemical addiction, that means you're actually consuming something um, that's that's causing this addiction. So it could be drugs such as cocaine or heroin um, or other substances or alcohol. And then the process addictions are more behavioral, but they also, you know, may cause the same changes in the brain as 
as the chemicals that others may use, and this would include um, gambling addictions or um, shopping addictions, and um, you know they're they're just as damaging. So when we talk about addiction, we're talking about really the whole the whole piece or or all of that information together. So in in your center, um, what do you primarily see coming through there? So primarily at Valley Hope, we focus on the chemical addictions, so drugs and alcohol. Um, I would say approximately close to 50% of our patients are, are suffering from alcohol use disorders, but we're seeing other substances on the rise, you know, and a lot of people now have heard about the opioid crisis. And so we do see a sharp increase in those with opioid use disorders, um, but we primarily focus on the, on the chemical um, dependency side of treatment. And do you find that you do have some people who come in with the process addictions as well, or do you, or do you send them somewhere else or? Absolutely. So we do see some that do also engage in some of those other um, process addictions and we don't treat them specifically at our, um, at our facilities. We do screen for those and we do make referrals to places that, that, um, are, are, are more well-versed in treating those process addictions. As, as I said, although the outcomes are very similar to uh, chemical dependency outcomes, um, you know, the treatment of them can be very exclusive and different. Okay. Um, so this might be a good time, actually, to tell our listeners about Valley Hope and exactly where it is, what it is, and how you work with individuals there. Sure, absolutely. So Valley Hope, um, we have actually been providing services um, for over 50 years now, um, starting in Norton, Kansas, which is in a remote part of the northwestern side of Kansas, um, back in the 60s. And uh, we've primarily focused on residential and outpatient services. So um, over the last 50 years, we've been able to expand in um, several different states, including Missouri, Kansas, Nebraska, Oklahoma. Texas, Colorado, Arizona. Um, I don't think I've missed any of our states, but um, we've got both residential and outpatient services in all of those states to date. So um, we're spread out um, a lot through the Midwest and then even into the Southwest region of the United States right now. As I said, we do provide residential services and what residential services are is it's 24 seven care. Uh, the typical stay is 28 to 30 days. Um, and this is where we can really provide intensive services um, with counseling and therapy, as well as detox services for those who are going through withdrawal. And we also offer what is considered um, one of the up and coming and very much evidence based, which is MAT therapy. That's an acronym for medication assisted um, treatment. And that includes medications that can assist patients in staying sober. Uh, while they're learning new coping skills, um, while they're addressing, you know, the issues in their life that have um, continued to contribute to ongoing use of substances. So um, there are medications out there, and we are able to treat that uh, certain ones with alcoholism or opioid use disorders with those medications if, if indicated by the doctors. And then we also have our outpatient services, which include intensive outpatient, as well as ongoing care at level one outpatient, which is uh, anywhere between, you know, one and eight hours of therapy a week, depending on the individual patient's needs. Wow. So the first 
thing that struck me is that are are you in more remote areas or are you closer to cities in the in the list of locations you've suggested? Well, we have we actually have a pretty good mix of both, to be honest. So we have some more remote areas um, located through Kansas, um, Nebraska, and Missouri. Um, but we're also in some of our more major metropolitan areas, such as Dallas, Texas, and Phoenix, Arizona, Denver, Colorado. So uh, we kind of have a, a varying um, array of both remote locations as well as in our more um, populated urban areas. And I ask that question because I've had several adolescents that have come through my practice or I've had parents consult me about where to send their adolescents for treatment. And usually the places, I, I specific, I didn't know of places close to us where I live in Florida, um, but the places that we typically found were in remote areas. And I didn't know if that was somehow part of the treatment planning to be away from society. <laughs> You know, and I think, you know, and I, I will, I'll say, I'll go ahead with a disclaimer here that I'm, I'm certainly not um, an expert on the adolescent side of, of substance abuse treatment, but it does seem that part of the adolescent treatment is is getting them away from um, and being more in those remote areas. So I, I do wonder if you're right, if it, that's really part of the treatment strategy for the adolescents. Right. That was just, that was just a question from some of my experiences. Um, I'm interested in this in the mat therapy. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that? Because sure. to be to be taking medication to overcome addiction to a substance it seems counterintuitive. It can at first and until you know you really have to kind of start you know, researching, you know, what, what has the research shown? And so the research has shown, um, you know, that, that people are more likely to stay sober long-term when they've had some assistance in dealing with the cravings of use, which is what MAT therapy primarily focuses on, is those cravings, which is primarily one of the biggest reasons why someone may relapse and return to use after initially um, getting cleaned up, going through detox. So the idea behind MAT therapy was to, if we can address these cravings and reduce the intensity of these cravings, if the patient is more likely to stay sober and more likely to continue to engage in therapy, then those medications can be titrated off over time and they can be free of all medications and substance abuse as well. So um, there's a lot of evidence out there that suggests that this is um, very helpful for both alcoholics and opioid addicts. Um, as of right now, those are the only two substances where there are any really effectual medications available for cravings. Um, I will mention that unlike some of the older medications that some have stated that people can still get high off of the medications, the medications I'm talking about with MAT therapy will not get someone high. They will not experience um, that same feeling of euphoria that they might have from their substance of choice. So that is kind of the primary difference there, that it's just simply treating the cravings to give them a longer chance to really engage in therapy and avoid some of those pitfalls that really do end up leading to relapse. And is that MAT therapy typically done inpatient or do you do it with outpatient? We do it with outpatient as well. And um, again, it's, it's with a, a doctor assessment and the patient's willingness. 
Um, some patients definitely want to try without, and we would certainly honor that. But we want to educate those patients what is available to them, what the evidence shows, um, and what the benefits may be, what the drawbacks may be. Um, and it can be done both. It can be started at inpatient or it can be started even if they're coming into the outpatient services as well. Because, again, one of the concerns would be with um, outpatient is are they taking it appropriately? Are they remembering to take it? Um, and concerns like that. But I imagine with the outpatient, do you bring in the, the family or the loved ones as well to assist in this process of working with them? Absolutely. And that's really one of the key components that we offer at Valley Hope is a focus on the family as well. And we see that, you know, healing from uh, substance use disorders is a family concern. The entire family um, needs to be involved if possible um, in, in the ongoing care and that healing and recovery process. So it's, it is very important that the family um, be involved as much as they can, be educated as much as they can into supporting um, their loved one um, in a healthy way uh, that we can, you know, get long-term recovery, but that the family can also heal in that process as well. Right. Well, we have a few minutes left in our first segment, and I was just, I just want to start the conversation about what addiction looks like. Okay. Is it possible to say what it looks like? <laughs> <laughs> well, it can look like many different things, you know, really. Um, and, you know, we, we have this idea, this image in our head, what, a, what does an alcoholic look like or what does an addict look like? You know, and oftentimes we'll get really very much what drives that stigma, which, well, it looks like someone who's living on the streets who hasn't bathed in a long time. It looks like this. And the truth is, um, and I've used this with, with some of my patients in the past, of, you know, an addict or alcoholic looks just like me. They can look just like me. They can be going to work every day. They can be, you know, paying their bills all the time. They can be very prestigious in the communities that they serve in and still be suffering from a substance use disorder. So there, there really is, um, you know, there's really no way to really identify um, one particular look, for example, of what does it look like if somebody's addicted um, we're as humans, we can get really good at hiding things. And um, over time, usually that does start to chip away, but it can take a long time for some. Um, so there's, you know, hopefully that answers your question or the direction you were trying to go. It, it does. Do you have an example of different looks of some addicts that have come through your clinic? Absolutely. So, you know, and I do have, you know, I have seen those who are, you know, living on the streets, usually as a result of their substance use over time. Um, but I've also had those that were coming in who have, you know, very prestigious jobs. They may be working in, in um, you know, the in, in law or even in, um, you know, different uh, capacities for, you know, engineering or, or, you know, a vast variety of professions. They'll come in in suits and ties and, um, but they're still very much suffering just the same um, as those that are have found themselves homeless as a result of their substance use disorder. Well, I hope everyone listening fully grasps that because I think it is really important this um, because that builds into the stigma and that people start to recognize that this is this is an illness, this is something that can be treated, but and it has to be recognized, and it's not um, 
something to sort of shy away from. So with that, we're going to go to a commercial break. Please stay tuned. We're talking to Melissa Kinworthy of Valley Hope Treatment Facility. If you have any questions, you can email me, Dr. Vidisha Patel at drvforkids at yahoo.com. And we will be right back. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Have you stopped to think seriously about hypnosis? Hypnosis can set you on your way to better health, can free you from anxiety, phobias, and so much more. Join host Inez Simpson for Hypnosis Everywhere, Inez Simpson and the Simpson Protocol. This show is for anyone from the experienced hypnotist practitioner to the merely curious. Inez Simpson offers tools and insights from the whole world of hypnosis with guests and open discussions. Hypnosis Everywhere, The Simpson Protocol, airs live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Do you feel that you aren't at your best when it comes to your personal health? Even if your doctor gives you a clean bill of health and says everything is in working order, perhaps you aren't feeling at the top of your game. Dr. Rebecca Risk overcame pain and fatigue despite all tests to the contrary. Learn how she put her health back on track and how you can too on Falling Through the Cracks. Live every Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective, plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. Step into a healthier you. Voice America Health & Wellness. You are tuned into Perspectives with Dr. Vadisha Patel. If you would like to reach the show today, please call into 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Patel at drv4kids at yahoo.com. That's Dr. V, the number four, kids at yahoo.com. Now, back to Perspectives. Welcome back to Perspectives. I'm your host, Dr. Vidisha Patel, and I'm in conversation with Melissa Kenworthy. We're talking about addictions and mostly uh, chemical addictions and associated stigmas, and also what hopefully we'll get to the point where we can talk about what we can do to help those that we know that might have an issue with addiction. So, Melissa, when we were talking about um, what addiction looks like before the break, and we were talking about how it can look like anything, really, and um, something that struck me as you were talking was that if you have somebody who is a professional working, maybe the CEO of a company or something, when, when does the addiction become an addiction that needs to be treated. Because if you you were talking about people paying their bills on time, going to work every day, working as engineers or lawyers or doctors, you know, whatever the field is, um, 
that's a little scary, <laughs> especially if you can't see that those people have that issue. So when does it sort of spill over into something that requires treatment and whose call is it? Right. Well, I think the important thing to remember is what, what it looks like on the outside may not always be what's going on in private. So oftentimes with those who appear to be, you know, they're, they're holding on their job, they're going to work, you know, they're, they're paying their bills. But oftentimes we find that at home, there are some serious problems. So they've got maybe some serious problems with their relationships with their spouse or with their children or with their families, or perhaps they're completely isolated altogether from, from anyone or everyone else. Um, there may be mental health things going on. Again, you know, what we see on the outside doesn't tell the story. And usually it's what's going on in private that really starts to, um, you know, show that there's an, there's an issue going on, that there's a problem. In my, in my opinion, anyone who's, you know, regularly and excessively consuming alcohol, for example, or um, any substances, um, y- you know, it's going to create at least a health issue at some point. And it's something to really take a look at. And it is a prog- what we call a progressive disease. So over time, it gets worse and worse and worse. And initially, they may be able to hold that job. But oftentimes, it does end up coming crashing down around them, and usually in very dramatic ways. So that makes sense to me, because you know I always used to tell my kids when they were little that if you're keeping a secret, or if you're telling a lie, actually, um, the truth always comes out. And it might come out right then, it might come out in six months or six years or 16 years, um, but it always comes out. And I sort of liken that to uh, what you're saying about this being a progressive disease and something starts to give ultimately. But interestingly, I know of an individual who has probably been an alcoholic for 50 years and a very high functioning alcoholic and is not. Um, does, doesn't admit it to themselves. It's obvious to those people around them that this is an issue. Um, what would you say to a family member that might, and do family members come to you to say, we have this issue or this concern? Um, do you get, do you get um, requests like that or questions like that? And if you did, how would you respond to them? Sure. Yeah, we do get questions from family a lot. And, and usually it is very much, you know, they're seeing the issue, but their their loved one doesn't see the issue, maybe even irritated that they're bringing it up. And, and the, so they don't know what else to do, but they know they need to do something. And in those situations, you know, we do have to try to remind them, especially if we're dealing with an adult loved one, um, that it, then this could be the hardest thing to remember is that adults have the right to make a bad decision. Uh, it doesn't mean that they're free from the consequences of those bad decisions, but they, they do reserve the right to make them. Um, and what I would suggest to family is to continue to talk to their loved one and saying, you know, we want to be able to help you, um, but we cannot continue to watch you do this. And sometimes it really takes family getting their own therapy um, behind, you know, even before the family member does to learn how to support and set healthy boundaries and be able to, um, you know, assist that, that loved one in seeing, Hey, maybe I could have a better life if I did something about this issue. 
That's great advice. And hopefully some people out there who are listening who might be in this situation can be helped by that. Um, so addiction, does it sort of happen overnight? Is how one gets addicted to drugs or alcohol or some other substance? Um, is how, how does that happen? And is also, well, I'll let you answer that first and then I'll follow up. <laughs> Okay. Well, it can happen in a number of ways. I mean, we, we've seen that happen very quickly, particularly with our younger folks, our young adults and adolescents, who oftentimes when they hit the road, they hit the road running, meaning, you know, when they start using, they start using heavily and, and frequently, and it seems to happen just immediately. Um, but what we do also know is that many times it happens over time. It starts with periodic use that in increases in its frequency and then all of a sudden patterns start to form and then we start seeing some negative consequences rise up and it could be very mild at first and then increasing in severity so it again it's very individualized um, but once you start seeing a pattern of use and you start noticing hey I can't seem to make it through my day um, without having a drink or I can't seem to um, get going in the morning without drinking for example if alcohol were the substance of choice these are some red flags um, that that something isn't quite right and you know we start thinking about you know what is normal use for an alcoholic or or what is normal use for those who use alcohol and are not alcoholics and most of the time um, if you think about the cage assessment which CAGE is actually an acronym for this assessment that anybody can do for themselves. It's a self-assessment self tool um, that asks uh, four questions. And the C in CAGE stands for cut down. Have you ever thought about that you needed to cut down? Um, and if the answer is yes, um, you know, it, it could be indicative of a problem. Um, the second question is, have you ever felt annoyed by family or others pointing out um, about your drinking habits or that they may be too much? Um, the third one on the G is, have you ever felt guilty about how much you've drank or, or about the things you've done under the influence? Um, that guilt um, is not a normal thing for people who drink in a normal manner. And then the last one, E, stands for the eye-opener, and that's the one I just referred to, which was, um, have you ever felt like you needed a drink to get your day going, um, to be able to feel right or feel normal? Um, and according to the cage, if you, um, if you say yes to two or more, um, that is indicative of a potential problem with alcohol. And that's as an example with alcohol. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're alcohol dependent or have a severe substance use disorder, but it could be indicative of you're on your way. And earlier intervention is always better, obviously, because hopefully fewer negative consequences have come up. Well, that was going to be one of my questions was, does it help to to catch this behavior early on? Um, because there's also, I guess I have a question about uh, this addiction challenge. Is it a hereditary, is there a hereditary component to it? And it's a behavior pattern. So would one who is, say, dependent on alcohol or drugs, would they also be dependent on other things? Would, would there be other addictive behaviors that maybe show up first before right. the addiction to the drugs or the alcohol? 
Right. So, um, so your first question was, is it hereditary? And and we do know that science shows that there seems to be a, you know, that there is a, a hereditary component for a predisposition to, um, to addiction. And that does not mean that if you have this predisposition towards addiction, that you will become addicted. We know that the environment plays a huge role in that as well. And so we think about, you know, our DNA, we have a lot of DNA, um, but what's expressed is not everything that, that our DNA makes up, right? So we may have that predisposition, but it may not necessarily be expressed in our lifetime, depending on other environmental factors, protective factors such as learning how to cope in a healthy way at a younger age, or um, not being exposed to to trauma or violence. Those are some pro, uh, protective factors and healthy family um, healthy family um, bonds and whatnot. Um, but those are not guarantees either. So you, you can also come from wonderful families. You can come from families that don't have a predisposition and still manage to become addicted. So, um, you know, there, although there's a hereditary component, we do see those who do not have a family history of substance use disorders and yet do find themselves in the throes of an addiction. Okay. Um, and what about the propensity to be addicted to other substances if you are addicted to one substance? Right. It, 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 that's what we usually refer to as what's called a cross addiction. And oftentimes we'll see this happen when, when someone has identified that their substance of choice, um, maybe it's alcohol or cocaine, and they've decided to go get help. Um, and they do so and they're able to stop using that particular substance, but they have found another substance um, and it replaces pretty much you know, their original uh, primary uh, drug of choice was to begin with. So it does, um, it, it creates a, a high risk of developing a, a use disorder to other substances once you have developed an addiction. Right. So what comes to mind immediately with that is cigarettes. When people I know who used to smoke cigarettes multiple packs a day and tried to give that up, they would start either eating more food or and then become addicted to food or they would switch to alcohol or or something, something else, maybe ch chocolate, you know, so um, I, I have noticed that replacement happening, um, which isn't really solving the problem. <laughs> so, Right, right. It's just transferring the problem to something else. Yeah. Right. So um, before I forget, I do want to tell the listeners that you can access the CAGE assessment online. Is that correct? Yes, you can. And so you just Google C-A-G-E assessment? C-A-G-E, mm-hmm. And that's, is that something that a family could do on behalf of a loved one if they were concerned? Or is it just a self-assessment? They could, but I think it's intended to be a self-assessment tool. Um, the idea behind it is to kind of give the person, the, the actual person dealing with the substance use disorder um, or, or potential, or they're not sure, to kind of educate and, and kind of enlighten them and go, okay, well, you know, maybe, maybe what I'm experiencing isn't normal. Um, maybe this is something I need to look into. A family member cer certainly could use it, you know, just to kind of ask their own questions. But ultimately, um, and again, I'm just I'm I'm framing this from the context of um, the person needing helping an adult um, that they have also, 
you know, been able to recognize that maybe I need to get this looked at. Maybe I need to check this out. Right. Okay. And then what about the individual who has a long day at work um, or a long day as a parent and needs a glass of wine or two glasses of wine in the evening just to sort of calm down but and relax, but it becomes something that they do every day. So it's not, um, it's not just on the weekend or just one day a week or um, would that fall under the addiction umbrella? It, it could. Um, I think it would depend on the person. Um, my first question would be what happens when you don't? Okay. And, and, you know, if there's no consequence to, you know, if you're not drinking that one or two glasses of wine at night um, on Wednesday night and nothing bad happens, what happens on Thursday? Um, and if you don't, and what about Friday if you don't? And, and usually if there's an issue, maybe anxiety goes up, maybe irritability goes up. Um, those who may be physically dependent may start getting shakes um, or not feeling like themselves. So if they start noticing those things, there could be an underlying issue there. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's something that I, I come across in my practice relatively frequently. And uh, I've had people who will tell me that and then they will say, well, and I just decided I didn't want to do that every day, so I just stopped. So that, in my mind, would not qualify as an addiction because they're able to, to shift their behavior. Um, Correct. Mm-hmm. So, okay, well, that, that's good to know. But then now this other side of it is as you are working with this addiction, you, there are withdrawal symptoms. So what does withdrawal look like and, and how, does, how does that work? <laughs> So withdrawal can look very different depending on the substance. Um, And I think it's important to point out that there are some substances in which withdrawal can be fatal. And those substances include alcohol, benzodiazepines, such as Xanax or Ambien um, or Valium, and also barbiturates, which are not as common these days as they were, you know, 20 plus years ago. Um, but it's very important to understand that the withdrawal syndrome for those particular substances can be fatal, and it's important to get um, medical help um, to help withdraw from alcohol or benzodiazepines or barbiturates, okay. for that matter. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually interrupt you. I'm so sorry, but we need to go okay. to another short commercial break, so don't go away. We'll be right back to talk some more about addiction and now withdrawal with Melissa Kinworthy. So stay tuned and we will be right back. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Frankly Speaking About Cancer is a program designed to empower survivors and their caregivers to deal with the social and emotional challenges of cancer. The show will invite physicians, researchers, nurses, social workers, patients, and caregivers to share their advice on how to live a better life with cancer. Join host Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community, Tuesday afternoons at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Can grief be good for you? Absolutely. 
It gets your attention, helping you evaluate your choices and relationships. Your losses define who you are. Tune in each week for Good Grief with host Cheryl Jones. Our show features those who have made incredible transformations by grieving their losses. You'll learn how to find your courage and strength. You'll discover the important things in your life and how to let go of things that are less important. Good Grief airs live Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health and Wellness. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Steps to a healthier you. Voice America Health and Wellness. You are tuned into Perspectives with Dr. Vadisha Patel. If you would like to reach the show today, please call into 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Patel at drv4kids at yahoo.com. That's Dr. V, the number 4, kids at yahoo.com. Now, back to Perspectives. Welcome back to the last segment of our show today. You're listening to Perspectives. I'm your host, Dr. Vidisha Patel. Please get in touch with me via email at drvforkids at yahoo.com with any questions or comments. I'm here with Melissa Kinworthy of Valley Hope talking about addiction and how we can and what we can do to help people um, or help ourselves if we have these issues. So um, just before the break, we had started talking about withdrawal, and you had mentioned that there are certain substances where the withdrawal process can be fatal. So if you could just highlight that from the listeners again, and then tell us a little bit more about withdrawal. Yes, absolutely. So the, the substances where withdrawal can be fatal include alcohol or benzodiazepines, which includes Xanax, uh, Ambien, uh, Valium as some examples, and then also barbiturates, with barbiturates, which are a little less common these days. Um, but it is very important that everyone understand that these can be fatal during the withdrawal syndrome. So it's important that they receive medical care um, right away to ensure safety and a safe withdrawal process. Um, so what that would look like, again, it, it does vary depending on the substance from which a person is withdrawing. Um, from alcohol, it can look very much like a very shaky, uh, feeling nauseated, um, and uh, maybe difficulty walking or orienting, and it can get even worse and more severe to include seizures, which is where we start really getting into the potential um, fatality of the withdrawal. Um, it can also include coma and then death. Um, benzodiazepines have a tendency to be very similar in um, withdrawal as alcohol. Um, with heroin or other opiates, it's usually described by patients as feeling like the flu only multiplied by a hundred. It's, it's, you know, the worst flu like symptoms that you could possibly imagine and generalized aching all over. It's very, very painful, um, but not known to be lethal. Right. Um, and then with uh, cocaine and with other stimulants such as methamphetamine, the withdrawal uh, usually can look very, uh, 
similar to uh, some sometimes symptoms of psychosis, uh, not just with the intoxication of the of the drugs or the stimulants, but also in the withdrawal syndrome, but uh, an intense craving and irritability uh, to use again is usually part of that acute withdrawal syndrome. Again, not typically fatal, um, you know, as it is with alcohol and benzodiazepines. So are these withdrawal symptoms that you would see if you try to stop using that substance um, sort of right away and it just, the cold turkey, so to speak, or is it, or does it also happen if you slowly try to reduce your intake of the substance? It could happen if you tried to slowly reduce your intake. What we found is that most people who are addicted are unable to slowly reduce their intake, and um, even even if um, you know they have someone else helping them and, and and doling out the amount, we often find that they're going around in secret and using more. So our you know our recommendations would be that if you're trying to stop using a substance, and it's gotten to the point where you cannot just quit entirely without consequence or without severe cravings or desire to use again, we would highly recommend that you at least go in for detox services, um, and then take a look at what next steps would be appropriate. Depending Depending on, um, you know, the severity of, of your um, particular substance use patterns or, or perhaps it is a substance use disorder um, and just follow the therapeutic recommendations from there. Sometimes that may be an ongoing, um, you know, residential treatment, you know, if the severity is, is high or it could be outpatient services depending on, again, the individual's needs. Um, but uh, I would highly recommend for that support as well as the therapy to help ensure that you're successful and successful in a safe way. Right. So what is the difference between the detox then and what you do inpatient, the inpatient services? Yeah. So the detox is, you know, basically you've, at least at Valley Hope, I can speak to what, what happens at Valley Hope. We ensure their safety. So there's comfort medications to help with any of the physical symptoms um, that are very difficult to get through. Um, they have nursing on site 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and they are able to see the doctor and they, they monitor the withdrawal and try to make that as um, as painless as possible, although it's not going to be completely painless, obviously, but, um, you know, it's going to be a lot better than trying to do it at home on your own and certainly a lot safer. And so um, detox is, um, you know, there would be other things available to them if they felt like going to therapeutic groups. Oftentimes they can do that um, while they're in detox. Um, It just really depends on where, you know, the severity of their symptoms and how they're feeling. Usually within the first three to seven days, um, you know, depending on, again, the severity. Um, those withdrawal symptoms have usually subsided enough that, that people are starting to feel more like themselves and not feeling as sick and wanting to engage in, in some therapeutic activities. Um, and so that's where the residential treatment could begin, uh, where they could receive um, group therapy, individual therapy. At Valley Hope, we also even have chaplains on staff that would see patients once a week um, just to talk about spirituality, not about any particular uh, religion or creed, um, but to help that patient explore their own belief system and their own spirituality. And all of that would be available to them uh, during the residential stay and including the family uh, whenever possible. So, So typically somebody who goes through the detox would stay on for residential treatment. Is that the common 
practice? It is most common. Uh, what we have found is, you know, most of the time, those um, needing detox services are usually in a state of severity that would also um, be a high likelihood of being an appropriate level of care at residential treatment. And how long, you said people stay typically 28 to 30 days. Is that what you said initially? Yes, that would, that's the ideal, um, would be a 28-day stay um, at the residential facility and really immersing into the therapeutic activities to try to get, you know, a, a good foundation, um, both uh, therapeutically and with the family so that you can transition home and continue that therapy at an outpatient level of care. Okay. So, so now we know somebody who has an addiction. We, we know that they need some help. Um, listener, for the listeners out there, so what can they do about it? What, how does, what does it look like? What is the likelihood of success? And um, walk us through what the process would be. So what that would look like, and I'm, you know, hopefully the, the, um, the person needing the, the treatment is, is finally willing to go and is, is willing to, to, um, look at getting some help. And so what that would look like first, you know, to find a good place to go, you know, um, if you have insurance, your insurance company would be a very, very good place to start as far as, you know, recommending a place near you um, that's accredited. Um, and accreditation can look different from, you know, many different states, but um, two of the most common in this particular field would be CARF, which is C-A-R-F accreditation, or joint commission accreditation. And those are, you know, just kind of some seals of approval that basically say, you know, these facilities have, have taken um, these extra steps to ensure good patient care and good practice in their care. So it can give you a, a little bit of peace of mind that this is a reputable place to go. And then, you know, one of the things to expect really for outcomes, it's really dependent on um, the engagement of the patient into the therapeutic process. So usually what we find our patients are coming in for a number of different reasons, but not often do they come with this internal desire to make a change, but rather external motivating factors such as the family says I need to or maybe they've got legal entanglements and the law says I have to, or, and that's okay um, as long as they start to develop an idea that, you know, I really want to stay sober too. And that can happen in treatment. So it, it, they don't have to necessarily want it for themselves going in that first day, but hopefully that does change pretty quickly during their, their treatment process. We also know that patients that stay engaged in what we call a continuum of care over time are more likely to be successful long-term staying sober. So what that means is that at whatever point that they enter, at whatever level of care that they enter, we do see some evidence that suggests as long as they stay involved in some sort of therapy um, for a year, we're seeing dramatic outcomes in a positive way for those to stay sober long-term. So that leads me to the question of how often do you have your patients coming back that because they've relapsed. Right. So, um, you know, the frequency of that really depends again on, you know, the patients that have truly engaged in that continuum. So patients that have come to us for detox and detox only, and they say, no, I'm not going to stay. I'm not going to do anything else. They frequently need services again. Um, those that 
maybe come in for detox and stay for residential, but then when they go home, they don't engage in any services, often they're going to need to do that again. Those that continue to engage in services from level of care to level of care, um, we're noticing with, with our data that shows um, upwards towards 80% of those patients that stay engaged in outpatient after their treatment with detox and residential are more likely to stay sober at an 80% rate, success rate, versus those that are very, very low at 40% or less um, if all they engaged in was just detox. Well, that's, that's great to know, and it's, I think it's something important for people to remember, um, that continuation, because often people will feel that I've solved my problem for now, I'm good, it's all going to be fine, and then maybe six months later, maybe not right away, there could mm-hmm. be a relapse, or maybe an addiction to another substance. Um, I don't know if you find that people come back with not necessarily relapsing to what they had come in for, but to maybe something else. Right, yes, it, and it, it happens a lot, actually. And describe for me a little bit about what the family's engagement looks like for, for families who do want to participate. For families that do want to participate, I, I would recommend that, that they uh, try to participate from start to finish, meaning even at the very beginning when the you know, when you're sitting down for an admissions assessment, um, you know, it, it's helpful for the counselors to hear the information from the family side um, and, and what they see as well. And really, um, you know, listening to that therapeutic process and asking about how can we get involved. And at Valley Hope, um, you can get involved in a lot of different ways. We also have family programming that's designed specifically for family members learning what addiction is about. So it's an educational piece, as well as a therapeutic piece is learning how to set those healthy boundaries with your loved one so that um, we're no longer enabling, you know, the, um, the, the maladaptive behaviors or the substance use, and we're supporting at the same time their decisions to make the, a good choice to get help and, and remain um, vigilant with that recovery process. And it also helps, you know, the loved one to know that they've got healthy supports there um, that will be able to, to kind of, you know, follow, you know, their progress and their own healing. That's great. And do the families, can they stay as well at Valley Hope or do they not typically stay? No, they don't typically stay, um, but they are invited to come and be part of, you know, the therapeutic process um, during the week. There's also visitation as well, which we would highly recommend coming and visiting, you know, your family member um, if they feel it's appropriate, you know, um, if the family feels it's appropriate for them. Right. Because I'm sure the needs of the family are are equally great and very different than yes they they really are they really are um you know we find that you know sometimes you know the family is is hurting just as much as as the person who's suffering from the, the addiction itself right so we just have a couple of minutes left and i was wondering if there was a recovery story that you could share with us um something that would be inspiring to our listeners Oh, yeah, absolutely. Actually, there's one I can think of. Um, it was actually many years ago. I was working in a long term. And when I say long term, it was a minimum of a 90 day um, residential program for women. Um, and this would have been, oh, gosh, back in 2009, 2010. 
um, this particular uh, young lady was one of my patients. And, you know, and she was, um, when she first came in, she was, you know, highly resistant, really angry, you know, yeah. about to get help. Uh, she was there for what other people might call all the wrong reasons. But in my opinion, there is no wrong reason to get help. Uh, she was there because she had had legal entanglements and had to be. So she was uh, very resistant, you know, to that. And um, But she did end up finishing the program and started doing well about 30 days in to that 90 days. She started really starting to make some behavioral changes. And um, she had um, discharged at that 90 days. And, um, and after that, I hadn't seen her until this past April. I had a conference for behavioral health providers and, um, I, and then, you know, I see, I see this, this woman and I think, my gosh, she looks so familiar, you know, but it's been a long time and I have <laughs> patients and she looks at me and then she notices me and she says, oh my gosh, Melissa. And she just, you know, runs at me and throws her arms around me and she goes, my whole life has changed and it's, it's all because of you. And of course I know, you know, it's actually the hard work that she put in, but bless her heart. She had, not only had she gotten, you know, was she successful, um, but she had gone back to school. Um, she had gotten her degree and a master's in social work. And now she was giving back by helping people um, in a social work capacity uh, get sober. And so it, it was just really amazing to see, you know, this broken young lady when I first saw her in 2009, 2010. Um, and then again, you know, seven, you know, eight years later and her entire life has changed and it's just so inspiring, you know, and it really um, accentuates that it, this is possible and, and you can fail at attempts over and over and over again at first and still be successful as long as you don't give up. And that's the key is never give up. That's a great, great message. So with that, thank you so much for joining us today on Perspectives, Melissa. Um, and thank you to my listeners. Uh, I've been talking with Melissa Kenworthy of Valley Hope, talking about addiction and how there is hope. So please don't give up if you need help. Uh, this is Dr. Vidisha Patel, your host for Perspectives. I look forward to being back with you next week for another edition. Feel free to email me in the meal meantime with questions and comments at drvforkids at yahoo.com. Have a wonderful week. Until next time. Thank you for listening to our program this week. Another edition of Perspectives with Dr. Vidisha Patel can be heard next Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Until we talk again, have a lovely week.